Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. The professor is traveling this week with his family in Chile on a family vacation, so unfortunately he won't be with us today. Please note, I'm a representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products. The views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got a really special show for you today, and it's very, very timely. Uh, politics is all the rage. Talks between North Korea and South Korea are taking place. There's the goal of easing tensions over there in Korea, and we've really got one of the foremost experts on both nuclear situations, missiles, um, as well as just generally the rise of the Asian superpowers, China versus the U.S., the goals, the tension that's creating. Our guest for the, the first half hour of the show is going to be Graham Allison. He's a Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. He's a leading analyst on all national security defense policies, and he also has a great new book uh, that I've been talking about a lot with people on, on what is the, the most important issue for us over the next decade uh, China versus U.S. destined for war. Can America and China escape Thucydides trap? Uh, on the second part of the show, we talk with Perth Toll, who's the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. And Perth has a background having grown up in Beijing and in, in China, and has a lot of experiences, uh, you know, from her, her background there. And we're going to talk to her about the indexes she's created. But for the the first part of the show, um, Graham, welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us to, to talk about your book and your views and all and all of the research you've, you've done. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so you have been in, involved in policy on, on sort of the key issue of the day. Um, so maybe we could sort of talk at a very high level. What maybe sort of talk about your personal experiences, and, and we'll get into a lot of the different dynamics of the current situation. But maybe you could talk what um, your reading of the situation is. You have this book, Destined for War. Talk about maybe the high level U.S. versus China, and, and what got you down this path of, of researching the book, Destined for War. Well, it's a long story, but the short of it is uh, uh, I've been a student of international security and American national security for all of my career. I've written a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, some many years ago, but I've studied nuclear weapons. I was part of the old Cold War and the Soviet Union. Uh, but over the last dozen years, uh, various of my former mentors, including Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founder and builder of Singapore, and Henry Kissinger, who's my old professor and been my colleague, you know, in the years since, kept saying, you should look more at China, you should look more at China. So the last dozen years I've been looking at the subject, and in the course of that came to the realization that what we're seeing in the rise of China and its impact on the U.S. is a version of a pattern that's really as old as history. Uh, the pattern that was identified 
by the father and founder of history, a fellow named Thucydides. And he wrote about uh, classical Greece and the occasion when the rise of Athens impacted Sparta and produced a catastrophic war. So in this book, I look at the last 500 years. I find 16 cases, one-six, in which a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. 12 of them end in war. Four of them end without war. So to say that war between a rising China and a ruling U.S. today is inevitable would be a mistake. That's not correct. But to say that the odds are not good would be right. And Thucydides reminded us in particular that in this dangerous dynamic between a rising power and a ruling power, the principal danger arises from third parties' actions, third party provocateurs in effect, who take an action not desired by either of the primary competitors, but to which one or the other feels compelled to respond, which then leads to a cycle of actions and reactions that end somewhere people don't want to go. And the great candidate for that today in the current scene is Kim Jong-un and what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, no, that was the uh, obvious thought pattern of what you were developing there is that that sounds eerily like the situation we have today. And so through that lens of what's happening in North Korea, how much is, is, is that the is that the biggest risk? We see that every day in the news with Trump and Kim Jong-un. Is that is, is that going to be is that something you're, you're worried about? And how, how do you see that playing out here? Well, if Thucydides were uh, if we could consult Thucydides, he would say, this is the pattern that we've seen before. So in the case of Athens and Sparta, there was a quarrelsome ally of Sparta's called Corinth, which is a city-state, and it got into a tangle with another party, Coursera, and then one thing led to the other, and the two parties found themselves at war. Or the more chilling analogy is 1914. So there, the assassination of an archduke, who didn't really matter at all, became the spark that produced a fire that burned down the whole of, of Europe, and at the end of which all of the great nations of Europe had been laid low. So basically, in the North Korean case today, we have with Kim Jong-un, uh, almost, uh, you know, if you were doing this in Hollywood, uh, central casting couldn't do better for a provocateur who is determined to have an ICBM that can deliver a nuclear weapon against San Francisco or Los Angeles. And now enter Donald Trump as his uh, sort of competitor who says, never is this going to happen on my watch. If the only way for me to prevent Kim Jong-un from completing the next set of ICBM tests and being able to attack San Francisco is for me to attack him, I'll do it. But uh, as we see these two trains sort of moving down, uh, you know, a, a paths to a to what will inevitably be a conclusion, or sorry, sorry, a uh, collision. Uh, we are now hoping that somehow, against hope, uh, Kim Jong Un can stop where he is now, and we can not attack him, and we'll find some resolution. But I would say this is like the situation 
that one saw in 1914, and indeed like a pattern that one sees repeatedly in the book uh, uh, with the 16 cases. So what do you think is, is Kim Jong-un's ultimate end goal through all these fighting with the U.S. and, and sort of the, the provocation is what's he looking for? What does he think he can sort of blackmail the U.S. into? And then what do, what do you see as China's reasons for sort of helping to defend essentially North Korea in, in a lot of this? Well, two good questions. So I think basically Kim Jong-un's motives are clear enough. We keep trying to make them more obscure than they are. He wants to survive and he wants his regime to survive, and he's noticed that there's a dangerous country called the U.S., which from time to time attacks countries like Saddam's Iraq or Gaddafi's Libya and overturns the government and kills the leader. And he doesn't want to be one of those. And he thinks that if he has nuclear weapons that can threaten the U.S., that there's no way the U.S. will attack him. And I would say, as much as I despise that logic, I think it has a certain uh, a, a certain credibility. On the other hand, uh, we have a China which uh, doesn't care uh, that much about Kim Jong-un and North Korea, even though it's been its traditional ally, but does care a lot about not having a unified Korea that's an American military ally on its border. So Korea abuts China. In 1950, when the North Koreans provoked the war by attacking South Korea, and the Americans came to the rescue, as we marched north to unify the country, and what would have been a unified country, China entered the war, and most of the Americans that were killed in the Korean War, of whom there were about 50,000, and most of the Chinese who were killed in that war, of which there were hundreds of thousands, and millions of Koreans were killed by Americans and Chinese fighting each other. So if it's hard to imagine that a little country like North Korea could take actions that at the end of which, the, uh, at the end of the action-reaction cycle, you have two nations, the U.S. and China, at war, we should look and look again at at the first Korean War, and notice they already did this once before. Yeah. What about the the other situation that's been brewing is is also the the the, the, the situation with Taiwan and and how the that interaction with with China is there any risk of Taiwan being also one of the catalysts? I mean, everybody's talking about North Absolutely. Korea every day, but absolutely. One of the chapters in the book is called uh, "From Here to War," and the purpose of the chapter is to say. Here are five paths in which it's not required to, to stretch, just easy steps on the current trajectory of events at the end of which you could have a war between the U.S. and China. And Taiwan is a very good candidate, just as you said, so that's a good point. So basically, for anybody that watched what happened in October at the party congress at which Xi Jinping, the leader of China, was not just re-elected for another five years, but he was really coronated like a like the like a twenty first century emperor with no with no successor in sight. In that he asserts clearly in the program that he outlined at the Party Congress that China is not about to become 
a democracy, as Westerners think of it. It wants to be a party-led state in which the party dominates everything and in which citizens live within a party framework. Well, in Taiwan, you now have 25 million people who have developed a democracy and who have a market economy and who live their lives the way they would like to do. So the formula that is the ambiguous sort of umbrella that's managed to prevent this issue from coming to a head has been the fiction that both Taiwan and China subscribe to and we endorse, which is really there's one country and two systems. It just happens they both disagree about which the country is. The Taiwanese think it's a country that would be, in effect, a reflection of Taiwan, and the Chinese think it's a China that will incorporate Taiwan. So there's no question whatever in anybody's mind that if Taiwan were to try to establish itself as an independent country, China will fight it and prevent that from happening. And if the U.S. should be supporting Taiwan, then it would find itself in a war with U.S. We're talking with Graham Allison, author of a book, Destined for War, uh, basically the, the, the discussion of China versus U.S. and the, the rise of China and how that's threatening the U.S. in some ways and how you know, uh, the Thucydides trap, uh, the example of 16 times in history, this led to uh, this ri rising power versus the, the, established, uh, the established country. Um, Graham, when you, when you think about just China's rise, I mean, what's impressed you the most? You had a, a huge uh, section in the book talking about just the the huge growth rates of China and, and how it's, it's come along to be really one of the, the, already one of the sort of leaders for the global economy. But maybe talk about, where, where you talked about sort of concept like the purchasing power parity of how much they can buy with their, for their military might given, you know, where their economy is on a PPP basis compared to just the general way we, we talk about them as the second largest economy in U.S. dollars. Talk about what's impressed you the most about China and why, why where you see that economy going. Well, I, I spent five days in China just uh, coming back the day before Christmas, talking, because everybody in China uh, is very interested in the argument about Thucydides' trap, since Xi Jinping talks about it a lot. And you can't, every time you go to China, you have to be blown away. Uh, as I say in the book, uh, I have a first chapter called The Rise of China. Most people in the U.S. haven't been watching, but never before has a country risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions. I quote former Czech president Václav Havel's good line. He says, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So uh, one dramatic example I can see looking out my office here at Harvard right now. There's a bridge that goes across the river between the Kennedy School, where my office is, and the business school across the Charles River. That bridge has been under renovation for now 48 months. It's not yet over. It's three times over budget. It's uh, been delayed four times. There's a bridge I drove across in Beijing last week called the Sanyan Bridge. It's uh, got twice as many traffic lanes as the bridge, the, the Harvard Bridge. Uh, they decided to renovate it the same way Harvard is doing in 2015. How long did it take for them to complete the project? And the answer is 43 hours. 43, so 43 months and 43 hours. hours. So 
So you can go to YouTube and actually put in the 43-hour China Bridge or Sanyan Bridge and see the video speeded up of this uh, of this project. So everything from the airport to the roads to the subways to the ports to the uh, hotels to the skyscrapers to the behaviors of the companies. When you are seeing this, anybody who hasn't seen China in its face and in its space has either not been looking or they should, you know, wake up. The, I, the U.S. I, we talk I, about an infrastructure package that maybe, that maybe Trump will get behind, but the infrastructure you talk about, sort of how many high-speed rail lines that they have in China being yeah. sort of more so than we, the rest of the world we combined. Have, we, have, we have one high-speed rail line that we've been building since 2010. It goes from San Francisco to Los Angeles, 500 miles. It was supposed to be done in 2017. They then said, no, oh, how about 2029? And many people think it will never happen. How many miles of high-speed rail did China lay in that same 10 years when we didn't finish the 500 miles? The answer is 16,000. Yeah. So if, 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 I, if we had a high-speed rail going from Boston to Washington, I could get on the, on the train and go at 180 miles an hour and be in Washington in an hour and 40 minutes. So just the, the, the whole conception is, is in, the, in the course that I teach, I have a, a quiz I give to people, and I give a short version in the book. It says, when could China become number one? And I have 46 indicators, key indicators, but in the book I just give a dozen. So the largest middle class, the biggest uh, producer of smartphones, the fastest supercomputers, uh, the largest uh, national economy. And uh, so students have to guess in the course. They have to write down which year, 2030, 2040, not in my lifetime. Then I show them a second slide, which is already, all those things already happened. Most people miss, miss the fact that the big takeaway from the IMF World Bank meeting in 2014 was that China now has the largest economy in the world, measured by what both the CIA and the IMF regard as the best single yardstick for measuring the size or comparing economies, which is purchasing power parity. So if you're buying airplanes or drones or bridges or subways or airports or whatever, it, it, using the currency of China in China today, you can buy more stuff than you can buy in the U.S., yeah. You, you know, you talk a lot about destined for war, uh, and, and there's there's obviously more than just military types of warfare. And, and you know, one of, the th one of the examples in the book you gave is, you know, they have the fastest supercomputer around, and cyber warfare is another, you know, hot topic of the day, and, and also the protection for cybersecurity. Any sense of, is, do you think the cyber warfare is, is a much higher chance to break out than sort of actually military shooting wars? Uh, or, you know, the other topical political discussion is trade wars with, with Trump and is he going to become more protectionist and that may be sort of a catalyst for, for, for further wars. But any commentary on those two types of well, wars I'd from the cyber both, war? I mean, cyber war is ongoing. That is, if you take, if this includes cyber theft, uh, as I described in the book, I mean, the Chinese theft of U.S. intellectual property is the greatest you know, theft ever, theft job ever in history. So basically, 
uh, several trillion dollars worth of intellectual property have been stolen. And in the Chinese uh, mode of operation, you know, what we call R&D, research and development, uh, they call R-D-N-T, and the T stands for theft. So if I can steal the design for an F-35, the American Advanced, advanced uh, Fighter, rather than invest in uh, research and development, I start with a great advantage. And actually, if you look at the rollout of the Chinese version of the F-35, they're almost able to deploy the plane faster than we can. So basically, I not only steal the stuff, but because I make things faster, I can produce them. So I would say you're seeing that across the spectrum. And now, in the economic realm, again, economic uh, conflict or war is a vague term. Do we have, a, in effect, an ongoing uh, uh, competition between the U.S. and China in the economic realm? Yes, we do. And are the terms of trade, or the, does China want to, as, as mercantilist and protectionist on a, a national economy as it can get away with? Yes, it does. And in fact, if you look at the program that Xi Jinping laid out at the 19th Party Congress, by 2025, so they set, like a business, they set specific objectives on specific dates. By 2025, they mean to dominate 10 key industries that they identify, which include uh, advanced information industries, including uh, quantum computing, uh, AI, and big data. Uh, by 2035, they mean to be the leader in innovation in every domain. And by 2049, they mean to be the global superpower. That's the plan they lay out. Now, again, between here and there, there are lots of uh, potential slips and a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges, and that's it's what we say, well, okay, well, I don't really believe this is going to happen. I hope that's not going to happen. If you look at the performance of China in the 21st century, the slowest year of growth they had after the great financial crisis in 20, 2007 and eight. The slowest year of growth was more than twice the fastest year of growth of the U.S. economy. So basically, this is a, this is a, as I quote Lee Kuan Yew in the book, he says, Americans are going to find this extremely difficult because China is destined to be the largest player in the history of the world. There's yeah. four times as many Chinese as there are Americans. So if they're only one quarter as productive, they'll have an economy as big as ours. And why should they only be one quarter as productive? No, absolutely. So, I mean, you, we could go on for a very long time on this, and I know we have you for a limited amount of time. Um, it, the, given the, this, you know, the, the seriousness of these issues in terms of just, uh, you know, you're, you're such an expert on the, the U.S.-Cuban missile crisis as well, and the amount of times that we got 
perilously close to that nuclear war actually breaking out, but, but by accident, it didn't happen. What are, you know, you talked about there's 16 times that Thucydides' trap occurred, 12 of them, it led to war, four of them didn't. What are these four situations that you think, you know, sort of the, the, the leaders were able to do that kept them away? What do you, do you see any of those signs that were able to, to draw on lessons, or, or do you think it's more like that 75% of the time? What, what should we learn from? Well, I'm, I'm I mean, the, the purpose of the book is to, to lay out a pretty stark diagnosis of the situation in order for us to recognize danger, because if you know that you're going into a dangerous domain or terrain, then you, you should change and adapt your behavior. So extremely dangerous conditions require extreme imagination and extreme adaptability. Two cases of this of the four success stories that I think often offer good lessons for us are first the rise of the U.S. to challenge Britain at the beginning of the 20th century. So as Germany was rising closer to home to challenge Britain in the decades before 1914, so too under Teddy Roosevelt was the U.S. rising to become first the dominant power in our hemisphere and then ultimately beyond. So in that case, the British were brilliant in adapting to a to the to necessity. And in particular, in adapting, they distinguished between what they thought was vital for them on the one hand, and what they thought was simply vested or the way things had been in the past on the other. So vital to Britain was Canada as part of the empire, which was crucial to Britain. So they, the sun in which, the, the empire in which the sun never set was Canada, uh, India, and South Africa, and, and Britain's other colonial holdings. So they were very concerned that the U.S. not threaten Canada, but when Teddy Roosevelt threatened war over a territorial dispute in Venezuela, they thought, is that really something that we want to fight about? Are we that concerned? No, and so they adapted and they adjusted. And they did so so adroitly that when World War I eventually came uh, because of the German-British competition, uh, the Americans immediately became the, the lifeline for Britain, first the supply line and the finance line and then ultimately the ally. So there's a lot of lessons there. The second case that's very instructive is the Cold War. So the Cold War is uh, worth studying carefully. There you had a rising Soviet Union, which hard as it is to believe now, appeared to people in 1955 or 60 or 65 or 70 about to overtake the U.S. So they had a surging economy under their command and control system. And if you uh, as, as I say, it's so hard to believe that I quote in the book uh, Paul Samuelson's economics, uh, introductory economics textbook, the 1964 edition, in which he says, oh, in the, in the 70s, the Soviet Union's going to overtake the U.S. economy. So in any case, uh, in those conditions, uh, rather than war, the U.S. invented a strategy for so-called Cold War. It was a complicated strategy. It emerged over about four years of 
fits and starts, but it included containing the Soviet expansion, included deterring any attacks upon us, and it included undermining the Soviet Union by basically encouraging the contradictions within the, the form of government that they had. And we persisted with that strategy for four decades until the point of victory. So again, I think there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from that example, mainly of the extent of imagination and adaptability that was reflected in what ultimately became the Cold War strategy that was then followed by Democrats and Republicans alike over this, you know, four decades. Well, we, uh, we appreciate you spending time with us. I hope uh, the government is listening to you and that you are advising them and taking your, your research and, and, and book seriously. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. Again, uh, Graham Allison is the author of a, a book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Through Cities Trap? Uh, Professor Allison, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Good. We'll have to have you back again um, with, with a little bit more time. Um, we, we're, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. We're going to have to take a short break, but we're going to be talking with Perth the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes, right after the break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by Lord School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and my guest today for this next half hour is going to be Perth Toll. She's the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. Uh, she's done a lot of work on emerging market investing, as well as just the, the factors that impact emerging markets. She's got a background on, on China. We just had a big extended discussion with with Graham Allison on his book, Destined for War, the, the Rise of China versus the U.S. Perth, welcome to our program today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you listened into you know some of that conversation with, with uh, Professor Allison. Uh, maybe you can just sort of talk off a little bit high level, introduce for our guests your background, uh, sort of you growing up in China and, and, and just your general take on, on what you heard uh, from your personal experiences. Sure, yeah. So I, I grew up in China um, for half basically spent half of my childhood in China and half in the U.S. Um, grew up in Beijing, was born there, and then went back and worked in Hong Kong after college um, for some time. And it was this during this time that I was in Hong Kong and working in the China business that I uh, uh, realized how different my life would have been had I stayed in China versus having moved to the U.S. as a child. So um, at this time, my eyes were kind of open to um, the impact of human freedoms and economic freedoms on the market. And this was around like, 2004 when China was opening up and there was a lot of excitement about the China business. And so um, some of his comments, I definitely agree that there's uh, a huge global threat with the rise of China. And I don't, I don't think we'd be as concerned if the, uh, the other power that's rising were, say, you know, Germany or Japan or one of these other countries. And I think that's because the way that China has run kind of their policies and, and their gover governance. So we don't necessarily want to live in a world where China is the global leader, so to speak. And uh, I think the biggest general takeaway is, you know, he talked a little bit about, about uh, protectionism, about um, trade. And um, I think one of the things that China sees very differently from the U.S. is that uh, they see this political influence as kind of a zero-sum game. So if it, you know, and that is what could lead to actual war. So, you know, the way that China operates, um, they see that you know, if, if one side wins, another side has to lose. I mean, they have this rhetoric about win-win 
Um, and I think this is exacerbated if one side feels that the protectionism on, on the other side prevents a free flow of ideas or capital um, at its own disadvantage. So if war is a concern, maybe one way that a threat can be decreased is to maybe protect free trade and free flow of capital and people you know, through these markets. So if we don't take the leadership in uh, free trade, China will probably step in and make alliances from the perspective of a zero-sum game for the benefit yeah. of China. So and, I mean, it's interesting, just the recent conversations with Trump pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP deal. I mean, I've seen some people saying that China is now going to step in and try to make their own free trade agreement over in that segment of the world. And that's sort of a missed opportunity for the U.S. and putting China really as sort of leadership in, in Asia. Is that is that something you're, you're hearing a lot about or is that an example you would agree with? Yeah, I would agree with that. So, you know, they definitely stepped in um, last year at Davos and said, hey, we're going to be the new global um, trade leaders, and uh, they're, you know, with OBOR, uh, One Belt, One Road, they're building, you know, the infrastructure to go through free trade routes throughout Asia. Um, and they're using this as kind of a leverage over these countries on the, on the way, you know, on this route to um, kind of use their sharp power and influence, you know, the politics in these countries and, and what other countries they, you know, make alliances with. So, yeah, definitely um, China is happy to step into that role. I don't know if um, that's the best thing for, you know, the region or for the world. So, but, but yeah, definitely. So when you say you don't know if that's the best thing for, for the world, I mean, so talk a little bit more, sort of explore that in, in, in depth. Like what, what is the challenge of, for the world of, of China really becoming the global, a global thought leader or, or having their will sort of imparted on, on, on the rest of the world? Yeah, so... Um, I think, you know, China's goals are noble, right? So they, they, want, they, they want to be seen as, you know, a, a world leader. They want respect and um, they just want to be, you know, basically seen as the way that they see themselves. You know, the, the book, Graham Allison's book, does talk about this, um, that they're in a position to protect their own people, to, you know, in, to contribute to peace in the world and all of this. But the way that they're doing it, the methods that they're using, are actually kind of making them like their own worst enemy. So they're, you know, the way that they're doing it, they're undermining rule of law. They're disregarding international laws, you know, extraterritorially, like in the South China Sea, the East Sea, and um, in Taiwan that you guys talked about. Um, this one-party rule and this one-man rule of, you know, sea consolidating power ever since he, he's been, you know, in this position, and even more so now that's kind of just snowballed the repression of dissent and expression, the sharp power that I mentioned all over the world to control political narratives of other nations, you know, the, their soft power campaigns of propaganda, you know, that, and, and their rhetoric that, hey, we are, we are the leaders now. Um, these things do not inspire the influence, deference, and the respect they seek. So if Chinese leaders want to show that they can one day have, you know, the power to protect their own people and contribute to world peace, they have to realize it's not force that will win in the end. It's what we stand for. So power comes from the values that defend us, not the fight itself, but what we're fighting for. So, so maybe talk through um, how you took some of your personal experiences from Beijing to Hong Kong to then thinking about how that impacted you know, your career path. So you founded Life and Liberty Indexes. Maybe talk about what your experience there got you to create uh, sort of company Life and Liberty Indexes. Yeah, so um, when I was in Hong Kong, I saw a lot of things that kind of shocked um, someone who spent a lot of time in the U.S. or in a free you know, country. So, you know, just a couple of examples. I had a friend who 
uh, what's considered one of these black children, and that's the term for them. And basically it means they have no you know, birth certificate, no school records, no state benefits, because they were born a second child. And so the one-child policy had a um, very big impact on me you know, when I went back um, and spent time in Hong Kong, because I'm a, a product of the one-child policy, so it affected my life, but also I saw how it affected my entire generation. And in a way, that cannot be recovered, you know, for many generations to come, and maybe never. So, you know, this is something that drives crime, like trafficking and, you know, kidnappings in China and in the region. Um, so things like that, I realized, like, even though they were really excited about their opening up to the world at that time and that the economic freedoms were loosening up, um, I realized that unless they had unless they couple that with human freedoms and just a basic respect for individual rights, you know, that this, you know, they would never be able to basically break through the growth ceilings that they're going to hit. And so you know, this is something that I realized a long time ago, but, you know, China had a, a huge economic rise over the last, you know, decade since I was over there. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, but then around 2015, everyone saw what happened, which is, you know, they manipulated the market artificially to return about 125%, depending on what kind of index you're looking at, right? So between like 100 and 130%. And then it fell um, just as dramatically. And then after that happened, after the crash, which they kind of created by creating the, the rise in, these, in the market, um, they went to, you know, took drastic steps to control, you know, what people did to kind of protect themselves in the market. So it was, you know, it was illegal to sell, not just short sell, but sell. They kidnapped, you know, um, the uh, hedge fund managers and, and different asset managers who made comments or, you know, negative reviews about certain, you know, parts of the stock market or certain equities. Um, you know, they, they had this huge, you know, they required their state banks to buy equities. You know, they um, halted trading on half of securities, and people couldn't get out. The regular people who they told to margin their houses to buy stocks now could not get out. So um, these kinds of things, I think, that you know, open the, the world's eyes to, you know, the type of control that they have on this market and that it's not truly a free market. So uh, basically, going back to your original question of what inspired me to do this index, China was a big part of that, and having you know, kind of a front row seat to what happened there um, did have a big part of that. So, you know, the basic premise for our index is you have to have both human and economic freedoms, and when, when a country has both of those um, in place, that provides a, a solid foundation for growth and innovation. And uh, freer countries perform better, they recover faster, and they utilize their human and economic capital more efficiently. So we're talking with Perth Holt, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes, about some of her new freedom-oriented investment concepts and her experience in China leading her to think about these indexes. And so, so Perth, when you think about, all right, if you're going to invest in China, and China is now, if you think about a standard emerging market index, um, you know, emerging markets may be 10% of a global market index, um, but China is upwards of closer to 30% of an emerging market index. They've particularly, you know, a lot of the new tech companies they've, they've been launched recently have become, you know, certainly just like tech globally has been on fire, but China tech in particular has been on, been on fire. And 
uh, performance been very good. What, how do you think about if you're going to invest in these these types of you know, you talk about there's a few different ways of, of investing, both from a country level, but then within countries. How, how do you think about building your indexes? Yeah, so you mentioned market cap weighted indexes and China being a huge part of them. And in fact, if you consider the whole, whole China region, China, Hong Kong and Taiwan together, it makes up about 40 percent of market cap weighted um, emerging markets indexes. And then if you add South Korea, which is a highly correlated market, um, now you have more than half of most market cap weighted you know emerging markets indexes in the china region and south korea so um, there's a slow recovery times large concentration risk especially in the china region and it ignores country fundamentals like demographics which is a huge um, factor in emerging markets and policies and governance so a, a market cap weighted index in emerging markets ignores um, basically a lot of important factors. And so one quote that I love is by George Gilder, and it says, an economics of systems only, of markets and not of men, is fatally flawed. It is preoccupied with mechanical models of markets and uninterested in the willful people who inhabit them. So ignored are the surprises that arise from free will and human creativity. So that is the danger of when you're investing in emerging markets, just using market cap weights. You're kind of getting a, like a China fund in disguise. And that's great. And I think that, you know, China has every potential to be the next world power. Right? They, they, I don't know if I agree that they currently are already, you know, based on the metrics that were discussed um, earlier, but I think they have every potential, and, and, and their biggest asset is their people. So if you're going to invest in China, the way to invest, and, and because another risk in China is these huge state-owned enterprises, right? So they, they're highly inefficient, and you've seen – the way the debt-driven growth over there being another huge risk um, of investing in China. So, you know, with the with with the the unique risks that you have in China, the way to invest in, in there, I think, would be to exclude the state-owned enterprises. Definitely, there should be more of a focus on some of these technology companies that are the innovative parts of China. You know, I think the when you talk about the the people, maybe t you know talk about the the my sort of the entrepreneurial culture there. So if if you're saying investing in the people, what do you think about the tech culture there? Is that something that you saw in in the young people there that there is still a spirit for innovation and and investing in the people is is you know can be awarded there for by focusing on on that sort of tech part of China? Yeah, that's that's a um that, that's a good question. So, yes, the people, the young people, they're absolutely very tech savvy. Um, nobody really functions without WeChat, you know, or WhatsApp, right? So you, your whole life is on there. You pay for everything on there. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a good, great market, you know, for, for, you know, tech. So, you know, and, of course, the sheer number of people, right, that are in China makes it a great market for tech. And same with India and some of these other emerging markets. Um, technology, though, can be used for good or evil, just like anything else. And in, with, a, with a government like China has, right, um, there's a lot of talk about surveillance now, right? All the money they're spending on AI uh, and surveillance and all of the um, censorship and, and, you know, monitoring that already goes on on WeChat and WhatsApp. I don't, I don't use WeChat and I don't send anything into Chinese cyberspace on, on these apps if I can help it because, you know, of this reason. And so um, 
there's there's two sides to this to this you know uh, sword. There's the you know yes, absolutely great market for it. I absolutely see you know huge growth in this in this industry. No better place for um, investing in this in, than China, just because of the um, the population situation there, um, and and the the way that people um, use technology. But at the same time, be careful with the way the central government handles surveillance and the way that they use technology as well. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, you know, they, so far the government hasn't been involved in a lot of technology companies, but they are talking about you know, recently taking some stakes in some of these sort of major tech guys, maybe it's only like 1% or so, but it, it's going to be interesting to see what, what influence the government has. And you could assume behind the scenes they've been involved, and you would probably assume even the U.S. government is behind the scenes involved in some of our tech companies in, in some way. Um, it's really interesting. Obviously, it's very different over there. Yeah, very different, um, and, and absolutely they're already involved. Um, you, can, you can tell by, like, Jack Ma's comments and some of these other, like, C-Trip CEO's comments that, you know, at, at, on, the, on the one hand, they have some um, immunity from the government because they are kind of um, like famous world figures now, right? So they have some immunity um, in what they say. And so they do, if you read between the lines, sometimes make references to, hey, we really need more innovation. You know, they don't say the word freedom or any democracy or anything like that. There are, there are, you know, CEOs that do say things like this, but it's not often. It's not um, many. So, for example, Zhang Xin, who's the CEO of um, Soho China, um, which is a huge property developer. She, she's a, it's a billionaire um, in Beijing and Shanghai. And, uh, you know, she said, what, what do people want when they have everything? And this was years ago. So this was like maybe 10 years ago. She said, what, what do people want when they have everything? You know, they, they want democracy. You know, you guys in the United States, she was doing this, this interview in the United States, and she was, you know, you guys in the United States, you can talk about all the problems that, that, that you have in the democracy, but never forget that people 8,000 miles away are looking at it and longing for it. So it's interesting that, you know, a CEO of a multi-billion-dollar you know, company in China who literally has everything, she has the story, she's self-made, you know, grew up so poor, she, you know, slept on a dictionary in the factory where she worked. You know, this is an amazing story, right? That she would come out and say something like this at huge, you know, political risk. Um, so, so, yeah, it is interesting, you know, what's going on over there in tech, um, in, in these companies. And Jack Ma, you know, kind of has a history with Xi Jinping as well, so that I would imagine offers him some protection as well. So, yeah, government relations is a huge department in every company in China, whether they talk about it or not. So, you know, having worked in China, you know, this is this is a huge thing. It's kind of like a PR department there. So it's like, um, yeah. So like last year, you know, the big story of the year was was China was stepping up for that 19th Party Congress, and that was sort of was a big fiscal support package across all of, I'd say, really cyclical commodities, and even commodities that sort of continued strong early into this year um, on the back of, partly on China's fiscal planning ahead of that 19th Party Congress. Did you take anything away from what you saw that came out of that or anything that you see as the next five-year plan, like the, the sort of run-up for that? Some people I've read say... You know, they, they, all the all the discussions around China involve around this, these five-year plans, so that they may try to do some sort of deleveraging over the next few years, uh, take some of the painful medicine, so that they can uh, have a, a successful five-year plan a few years from now, and so that you know, you could 
see more success in a few years. Any any thoughts on just what you saw from that 19th Party Congress? Yeah, so I, I agree with, you know, the the assessment of the the goals of that Congress made by, you know, the previous guest. Um, I think in order to accomplish some of these very lofty goals, that they will, they will have to make good on, on some of their rhetoric on um, on reform. So, so far, we've had about, you know, we have more than 10 years of lost time uh, on reform, where there is just rhetoric and no actual reform, right? So they would have to, you know, actually reform, have structural reforms, which, you know, we've talked about before, like we see in India, it could initially be painful, and typically is. So unless they allow that type of, you know, actual reform to take place, instead of just talking about it, um, like deleveraging is a big one, um, and maybe currency controls, right, things like that, maybe a little more freedom for the people so they can be more innovative. Um, so, so yeah, the, the actual reforms is what's important, not the, the rhetoric. And I think that's actually one of the, the biggest risks in China right now is that Xi Jinping is, has this challenge to, um, to kind of set expectations with his people of slowing growth. So despite all this talk, and I think a lot of this rhetoric is for political purposes. So I don't know that anyone really believes that these goals will actually happen. I think they can, right? Um, they have absolutely every potential. But something has to change in the methods that they're using right now, because the methods they're using right now is not going to lead to these kinds of results. Um, but Xi Jinping has to say these things to kind of um, keep from social unrest, and because it's, a, it's the economic growth and the, and the uh, or the, at least the facade of it, if, if he can keep it up, um, that legitimizes the central, you know, the, the Communist Party's power. So that is, you know, a, a fine line he has to walk, and I think that's a huge challenge for him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely see the challenges that he faces. So, you know, don't blame, don't blame him for, for kind of wanting those, those points. Sure. Um, so as you think back to, you know, going back to, to your company, Life and Liberty Indexes, and what you're, what you're trying to accomplish, maybe you can sort of wrap up. We have about four or five minutes left. You know, as you think about what, what the indexes are, are striving to represent, you believe a lot in these concepts of freedom. Maybe talk about how you think freedom can apply beyond, say, you know, if we're talking about ex-state ownership as one concept that you would think about building into indexes. But what else? As, as you think beyond you know, how freedom could apply, what are the other types of things you're, you're working on? Yeah, so uh, we categorize freedoms into three main, main uh, sections, right? So life, liberty, and property, life being civil freedoms, liberty being political freedoms, and property being economic freedoms. So property or economic freedoms is, is kind of what we've been discussing um, here, you know, things like free trade and um, sound money, size of government, legal system, and, pro and property rights regulations, and so forth. Life is things like violent conflict, terrorism, disappearances, torture, trafficking, and so forth. And then liberty is things like rule of law, um, political parties, and accountability, which is a huge thing that China doesn't have right now, right? Checks and balances. Um, corruption and transparency, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association. So. Um, these are the things that, uh, you know, we, and we use a, a, a third-party think tank that scores 79 variables 
um, in the country scoring process, and we look at it on the country level first. So we take a universe of 23 emerging market countries um, and then rank them according to their country scores, and then we freedom weight them. So instead of market cap weighting, we use freedom as the weighting mechanism, and um, the higher freedom countries get a higher allocation, the lower freedom countries get a lower allocation, and the worst offenders are eliminated from the index. So, um, and then on the, on the security level, we look at, you know, ex-state-owned enterprises and, and taking those out from, from the, uh, the pool. So basically just bringing the economic freedom theme all the way through. So we look at it both on the, the country and the security level, but mostly um, the difference in this index and others comes from the country level. Um, and, and that's basically how we do it. And then the way that we, the reason why we do that is we do believe that, you know, freer countries perform better, they recover faster, they're more resilient, and they utilize their human and economic capital more efficiently. Very good. Um, and uh, I think we're, we're, we're down to our, our final closing thoughts. Any other things, uh, just briefly, other types of things you think about applying freedom to? Like, what, where else do you think you can develop these kind of freedom-weighted concepts just at a, at a quick, high level? Um, so, you know, you can, you can apply this basically to any market or any type of market you want. Like frontier market is very interesting to me. And another thing that's interesting to me um, right now is there's a lot of talk in the domestic market and in developed markets of women's rights. Um, so women's rights issues in developed and emerging countries are very different. And, you know, with the one-child policy having a huge effect on women's rights in China and surrounding regions, um, yep. being one of my original inspirations. Um, that is something very interesting to me because, you know, in, in, in developed markets, you're worried about things like um, number of women on boards, um, equal working conditions, equal pay, um, maternity leave and paternity leave and so forth. Uh, in emerging market countries like the ones that are in most of these indexes, you're worried about things like do I get killed for going to school or driving or having yep. children, you know, things like that. We have to wrap up. We ran out of time. <laughs> Perth, uh, we talked with Perth Toll of Life and Liberty Indexes. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great show. We had Graham Allison, author of Destined for War, first half of the program. You're listening to Behind the Markets and the Sirius XM 111. Be back next week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.